Okay, so um, over the next, well, hopefully tonight, but if we're honest, it might be next week as well. <laughs> um, we're going to look at how to study the Bible. And um, this is a combination of two major resources. Uh, one is from the year I moved here at this church. Arta Zerdia from Portland came down and uh, did a weekend kind of workshop on a Saturday. And uh, so a lot of these are, uh, will be some of his notes, as well as um, a book that I have in my library called Basic Bible Interpretation by Roy Zuck. And uh, those are a couple of the big resources for this. Um, and so if you will, take your Bible and open up to Nehemiah chapter 8. This is when uh, the people were returned from Babylon. They were rebuilding the wall. And the first seven chapters are uh, the rebuilding of the wall and the trials that came with that. Uh, as Nehemiah the cupbearer was given provision from the king and the authority from the Lord to rebuild the wall. And after it was built, says all the people in verse one of chapter eight, all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all that could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and women and those who could understand and the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wit, wood which they had made for the purpose, and beside him at his right hand stood Matthias, Shem, Ananiah, Urijah, Hilkiah, and Messiah, and at his left hand, Padiah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, should have skipped this part, Zechariah, and Meshulam. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And then all the people answered, amen, amen, while lifting up their hands and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Uh, these men then helped the people understand the law and the people stood in their place. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. And so we have here what's called the revival at the Watergate where, um, you know, it's, it's been a long time since the priest was asked to bring out the word and to read from it. And Ezra came and he brought the word and as he read it out, um, and, and all of the scribes helped give insight into it and, and helped give understanding to the word, the people shouted out, amen, amen. And uh, what you have following this great exposition of the scriptures as they're read is this revival that takes place. And then chapter nine, you have the people reaffirming their, their covenant with the Lord uh, with these great statements. And then you're gonna have them fail again and reaffirm it and fail. And this is the last uh, chronological book of the Old Testament. This is like how it ends is the people saying, amen, amen, and this revival taking place. And then they'd fail again. And Ezra or uh, Nehemiah is just... Uh, really upset. <laughs> and so it leaves you hanging on for someone who's going to come and who's going to keep the law 
for you. Uh, and that's how Matthew starts out, you know, is there's someone who's coming, who's going to um, save the people from their sins. And that's why Joseph was to name him Jesus. And so you have this reformation or you have this revival. And uh, it's just important to note as you read that, that there's no such thing as God produced revival, renewal, or reformation apart from the reestablishment of the word of God and its place of authority among the people. They read from the Bible in chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. They explained the Bible and they applied the Bible to their lives. And so that's something that we are going to learn how to do is read the Bible, explain the Bible, and apply the Bible to our lives. And we just pray, as I've been studying this today, I found myself on my knees in my office just crying out for the Lord to grow me in this, to grow me in this. I want to get better. I don't know about you guys. I want to get better. And I want to be very much committed to this process of teaching as every one of you in different capacities uh, are going to be teaching people from the church, uh, children, youth, women, or, uh, or men, or both. Um, a lot of times people hear uh, in an hour from me what took me um, anywhere from eight to 20 hours of studying. And, and you got to bring it out in an hour long. That's why it's always, it's hard for me to cut down, you know, of difficulty with that. And uh, as Art put it, it's like an iceberg that only shows a little bit of it. 90% or more is underwater. Um, there's a real labor that takes place that is hours and hours and hours of studying and prayer that the Lord would make you keen. Paul says that that's what it is when he talked to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5. Let those labor, and it speaks of to the point of exhaustion in preaching and teaching, let them receive a double honor because they pour themselves out. But it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Like Eric Little in Chariots of Fire, he is talking to his sister who's saying, why don't you just hurry up and be a missionary to China? Quit running. Quit being a runner. And he says, man, I believe that, that when I run, I feel the Lord's pleasure. He's made me fast. He's given me a heart for China, but I'm also fast. I'm a good runner. And when I run, I run for the glory of God. I feel his good pleasure. And those of you that, uh, that teach and that study the word to preach it, uh, you feel that as well. Um, as you look at your, uh, is there an extra one of those? wanted to make sure that I'm a little bit in sync with you guys. Uh, the privilege and responsibility that we have of Bible study, uh, a tension there between privilege, uh, as we've looked at the canon last week, it, we noticed that it's like in the last 400 years that the Bible has really been able to be in the hand of every Christian and to be in English. Before that, if you were found with a Bible in your hand, you were killed, you were slaughtered. Um, you know, and we studied that as the Catholics had their authority of the magisterium and the Pope, um, Protestants who would try to get the Bible in their own language, they, Catholics knew they were going to be confronted on it. That was a very dangerous thing. And so it was kill everybody who has a Bible in their own language, uh, because we would need to be repenting. And so we looked at the men starting from Wycliffe and going on through the Reformation who made it possible for us to have the Bible in our language and how they were, like in Wycliffe's case, you might remember he was hunted and hunted and finally found. He was burnt at the stake. And I didn't mention last week that how they burnt him, uh, similar to, uh, I think it was Huss, who was burned right 
few months after him, um, uh, Wycliffe was burnt with his own writings wrapped around his neck and then lit on fire. Um, and so you see the privilege that we have, these men made available for us to have the text and to be faithful to it and to teach other people it. Uh, and so that's the privilege, but there's also a great responsibility um, in that uh, so often we can be careless in our Bible study. We can be subjective or relative in our Bible studying. Um, Protestants came on the scene and they gave us the, the Bible to where, you know, people could read it. And there's that ability to be interpreting it as they're studying it, um, which meant that we didn't have to have the church hierarchy uh, to figure it out for us anymore. Um, and so, but the danger to that is uh, people getting around the coffee table and you guys have heard this, maybe even in your core groups and they'll say, okay, what does this verse mean to you? Well, this verse means to me, blue, 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 and it's not biblical stuff. And we need to get away from what it means to us and figure out what did it mean to the original people and what does it mean to the church today? But we want to avoid to me, this verse means this. Uh, with the rights of private interpretation comes the sober responsibility of accurate interpretation. We want to look out for two different extremes here. First of all, subject, uh, subjectivism, which uh, is very dangerous. I don't care what any scholar says, teacher says, or preacher says, my feelings supersede all the study that's been done. Don't tell me what the Greek word means, what the subject or the verb or the sentence structure is. I don't wanna look up the word and perhaps in this case, redemption or what it means. I just wanna know what the spirit is saying to me at this moment. Uh, and so the Bible can consequently be Bible study viewed as carnal as though being spirit-led and being faithful to study and to work hard are mutually exclusive. Uh, then we have what I just call favorite preacherism, which is, you know, I don't need to know what the passage says because insert name of your favorite preacher says this is what it is. It's what John Piper or R.C. Sproul or Chuck Smith or Spurgeon, whoever, and um, we can't ignore the scholarship that God's given to the church and these great men who've been faithful, but uh, we can't let it be what leads us to say, I myself am not going to work hard at studying the Bible. Uh, those that teach the word have a great uh, accountability one day that they're going to give. And that's why Paul says, don't let many of you become teachers because you're going to receive the stricter judgment at the way we handle the word. Um, so God work in us as he hopefully has been the last couple of weeks, a deep appreciation for the word of God. The moment you begin to misinterpret the word in your teaching setting, you don't have the word of God to fall back on anymore. It's not the word of God anymore. It's, it's what you've made it to be. And so we want to stick to what it says. Martin Luther was asked to what he attributed all the effects of the Protestant Reformation. His response was classic Luther, a very down-to-earth guy. He said, while my Philip, speaking of his friend, while my Philip and I drank beer in Amsdorf, the word did it all. And he's just kind of being... Uh, you know, a little bit silly there in a sense, but just recognizing, hey, it was the word that did it. Uh, and as you look at the history that we looked at last week of the Reformation, uh, you know that it was having the scriptures 
in the hands of the people that changed the people. The Holy Spirit did that. Um, we want to make sure when we teach, when we share, when we preach, when we're singing on the worship team, so this is good for, for you, Tammy, and Scott, and anybody else, uh, that what we're singing is biblical, that it's what the Bible means and not what we think it means or how it feels to me when I read that. So it's good to know, what is this? Is this really something that's biblical? I think I skipped there that uh, <clears throat> having a right Bible in interpretation is indispensable to our growth, our maturity, the success of our congregation. Uh, that's all successful to the extent to which we're faithful to the scripture. Um, we're going to skip this question, but you might just circle it and come back to it later, and it has Art's uh, answer to it. Um, what, what about when a faithful theologian would say this, but then another theologian says this? Uh, what do you do there? It was a question in this seminar that Art taught here, and you can kind of read that and come back to it. Maybe we could come back to it later. <clears throat> uh, some of the language that we want to learn as we're studying how to study the Bible few key terms that we want to define. Um, just like each one of our professions has certain terms you need to understand, whether you're a contractor, a mechanic, a welder, an accountant, there's vocabulary and you need to learn it. You can't just say, I don't want to learn the vocabulary. It's very important that you know it. And so uh, first word for us tonight is uh, hermeneutics. Hermeneutics. H-E-R-M-E-N. Herman. E-U-T-I-C-S. Hermeneutics is the science and art of Bible interpretation, the science and art of biblical interpretation. It's the setting forth of uh, methodological principles and techniques necessary to interpret the biblical text. What hermeneutics does is it gives us the method that we can rightly study the scriptures. Uh, cutting our Bible study time short leads to faulty interpretation and it distorts the word of God uh, all the way up to people's destruction. Uh, people can make the Bible say anything they want if they disregard normal approaches in understanding the written documents. Uh, was powerfully put, the approach to Bible study that governs our methodology or our hermeneutics is often referred to as, are you ready for it? The literal, historical, grammatical, contextual approach to the scriptures. And we're going to pull that apart, apart bit by bit, okay? Um, and so there's a reason I have it colored on mine. It's <laughs> really tiny in yours. Um, so... This is the methodology. I think this might be one of your first blanks on your thing here tonight. Oh, hermeneutics. Yeah, that was maybe your first one. Um, it's the methodology we feel the Bible demands for itself. Literal, historical, grammatical, contextual approach to the scriptures. So first of all, literal. The literal approach to the scriptures or the plain approach to the scriptures. Plain. The Bible is not written in some kind of a magical language that can only be locked by, unlocked by mysterious methods, the Da Vinci Code or whatnot. Uh, to interpret the Bible literally means that we seek to explain the sense of the author according to the customary, 
plain usage of language and words. So you do want to watch out for code books or things that say that God will give you the hidden knowledge through this special program or something. Uh, you don't need that. You don't need that. The word of God will speak for itself. Um, the New Testament was written 2,000 years ago in a language not used anymore. It came to us in Koine Greek in the first century, from the first century, uh, which is way different language than the Greek that is used in Greece today. Um, if we relied on our modern Greece, would be we'd be up a creek. The Old Testament, in some instances, is as much as four thousand years old. Uh, so it's it's difficult, and you gotta do the work of hermeneutics. Um, Jesus uses figures of speech. We're gonna look at that in a little while. He uses things like "I'm the door" and "You're the sheep." And Paul said on. Uh, Sunday in 1 Corinthians 10, that that rock was Christ, uh, and looking at the similarities there, but we'll look at figures of speech uh, later on in this study. The reformers referred to something that was called census literalis, census literalis, C-E-N-S-U-S, literalis. <laughs> it doesn't mean literal sense, but literary sense, okay? The literary sense. This means we need to figure out what kind of literary genre we are reading in whatever passage we happen to be studying. Is it a letter, like the book of Romans? Is it a narrative, like First Samuel is, or poetry, like the Psalms? Is it apocalyptic, like the book of Revelation? How you read this genre determines what you get out of it. An example would be in Proverbs where it says, train up a child in the way that he should go. When he's old, he will not depart from it. And we have read that as a promise, haven't we? I remember I've counseled people that, ah, don't worry about it. You know, you've trained him up. Let him go through his partying days. But when that child goes off the rails and doesn't come back, Many godly parents are under bondage and condemnation because at the end of the day, I misapplied the text because it was written as a proverb, not a promise. Proverbs are axioms, okay? Axioms, A-X-I-O-M-S. Axioms, which are statements of what is true most of the time, okay? I will never leave you nor forsake you, Jesus says. Now that's a promise, okay? You can take that to the bank. It's essential to determine what kind of literary genre we're talking about. A letter will read different than a comic book, which will read different than a tax code, which will read different than a history textbook, which will read different than a Shakespearean sonnet. You can tell what it is by what it says. If you picked up something that read once upon a time, you know you're reading a fairy tale that, can be that should be interpreted different than the front page of the newspaper. And that's where everyone laughed during arts study, right? And then he got going on about the election of Obama. Okay, uh, <laughs> it's funnier when he does it. Um, or how we have the term filled with the Holy Spirit, which is a figure of speech, because the Holy Spirit is not a fluid and he's not a ghost. 
he's a person, and the metaphor was used in Ephesians after uh, the discussion on being filled with wine, or in Revelation, a beast that we read of. Do you think that there's literally monsters around uh, the world at the time of the book of Revelation? Are these beasts governmental powers that are ruled by dictators who oppress the people of God, similar as in the book of Daniel? Um, That's what beast represents in the Bible. So, sensus literalis, appreciating the literary sense of the Bible. Then we have the historical metaphor, or the, excuse me, the historical method by which we interpret the scriptures, and study the Bible. Historical. (laughs) Be about ready for some chapstick here soon, Lindsay. (laughs) All this talking. Need to grease my wheels. Okay. (laughs) Scott's is a little sparkly for me. Oh. (laughs) Bubblegum flavored. Oh. Okay. Man. Okay. The historical method. The Bible was written at particular times of history by particular people facing particular problems in particular cultures. To arrive at the accurate sense of any passage necessitates that we first understand the culture, history, and geography that surrounds its message. Bible studying will seek to answer, number one, what did it mean then? And two, what does it mean now? Many of our mistakes are by trying, come by trying to answer the second question first. Hey, what does this mean now to me, right? What does it mean now to our core group or to our home group? But it can't mean now what it didn't mean then. So you need to spend much of your time when you're studying the scriptures, trying to figure out what it meant then, okay? Why was Paul writing to the Romans? What issues was he reckoning with? What were the needs of the church at that time and the problems that he was addressing? Need to understand the background of the books. Why is the fourth gospel in the Bible? Why aren't there just three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke? And and as you read the scriptures, you'll see like in John 20, 31, these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So that's the purpose behind John's gospel was to show Jesus being the son of God and that we might believe in that, having life in his name. Yes, Jesus did a ton of miracles, but John only included seven. So while it was a biography, it was more of a theological biography. He had an agenda so that the people might know that Jesus was the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing, those people would have life in his name. There's a reason people don't always get saved when they read the book of Leviticus, and that wasn't the purpose behind the writer there. First John has a reason behind his book. It's the same author, but different purposes. First John 5, 12, he who has the son has life. He who does not have the son does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the son of God. So for that content, or for that uh, uh, book, he's trying to get across the assurance of salvation that we might know that we have eternal life. 
And uh, so he tells us why it was written to people to determine whether or not they really belong to Jesus. First uh, Timothy chapter three, I accidentally wrote, why was first John written? Why was first Timothy written? The book tells us in chapter three, verses 14 and 15, these things I write to you, even though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourselves in the house of God. So Paul writes to Timothy, to Timothy, who is timid. He actually tells him, don't be timid anymore, all right? But be bold. He didn't write this to Titus. He wrote it to Timothy because Timothy needed to know how people should be conducting themselves in the house of God and how it should be led and so on and so forth. Um, issues that we should be preoccupied with and things that we should be warned about. So you need to ask yourself when you're studying something, why was this written? Why was this written? In a couple of weeks, we'll be in 1 Corinthians 13, where we read about, you know, if I, uh, uh, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, I'm like a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And why would he be talking about that? You know, just reminiscent of band practice in middle school days? Or is he more considering the pagan worship ceremonies that was going on in Corinth at the temple of Aphrodite's? Head covering issues, we'll study that in a minute, but what's that all about in 1 Corinthians 11? Well, you would need to understand the culture in Corinth. Um, It's important to note even the geography of the area so that it could have a bearing on how you understand it. And Art just shared a story about when he was a kid, his pastor used to always talk about how Jesus just went so far out of his way to go and share the gospel with the Samaritan woman at the well. And if you look at a map and if you've gone to Israel, you know that actually Jesus was on his way from the Sea of Galilee in the north down to Jerusalem in the south. And in between is the area of Samaria where the Jordan River crosses through. And that's how they would travel down to Jerusalem. So he didn't go out of his way, but he did go a long ways in tearing down cultural barriers, uh, so, uh, social barriers, gender barriers, racial barriers, and all of those things. So he did go a long way, but it wasn't geographically like this, this pastor put it. So got to understand things like that as well. Um, with this, looking at the cultural gap, we want to uh, bridge the cultural gap. Uh, understanding the Bible properly requires that we clear our minds of all ideas and opinions and systems of our own day and attempt to put ourselves into the times and surroundings of the apostles and prophets uh, who wrote. When the reformers emphasized the need to get back to the scriptures, they emphasized historical, grammatical interpretations. Uh, Historical in that the setting that the Bible books were written the circumstances that were involved in the writing. Grammatical, we'll get to in a minute, determining the meaning of the Bible by studying the words and the sentence in their normal, plain sense. And rhetorical, studying how literary qualities of a portion of a Bible affects its interpretation. Two here, the context in which the passage was written influences how that passage is to be understood. Uh, We're going to look at the verses immediately before and after a passage. The paragraph and book in which the verses occur. The dispensation in which it was written. Time period which uh, which God is dealing with man. The message of the entire Bible as a whole. 
the historical, cultural environment of the time that it was written. I want to ask and answer the questions. Who wrote the book? What time was it written? What prompted the author to write the book? What problems and situations or needs was he addressing? What is the book all about? To whom was it written? This all kind of is wrapped up in culture. Webster defines the culture as the total pattern of human behavior. That includes thought, speech, action, and artifacts. And as the customary beliefs, social forms, and material traits of a racial, religious, or social group. Alan Johnson said, if we fail to give attention to these matters of culture, then we may be guilty of eisegesis, reading into the Bible our Western 21st century ideas. We'll talk about eisegesis in a little bit, but it's, he puts it well there. Reading into the Bible our Western 21st century ideas. Context concern forces us away from, sorry, mistyped there, forces us away from our private meanings back into the framework of the author. Or as Bernard Ram, I thought of your grandpa, Bernard, don't hear that much. As Bernard Ram put, attention to the cultural studies in the Bible enables us to know the original, literal, socially designated meaning of the word, phrase, or a custom. Literal interpretation is crippled without the help of cultural studies. Again, like biblical history, cultural matters are not niceties we may search out if we have the time, but which we may ignore under the pressure of time and circumstances. They are indispensable for the accurate understanding of the Holy Scripture. So we need to do our work to understand the culture of the book. Cultural factors to watch for are political, religious, whether it's sound religious practices or pagan practices, economic, legal, agricultural, architectural, clothing, domestic, geographical, military, social, and uh, oftentimes commentaries help explain customs like these. To what extent are passages of the Bible limited by culture? This is an important question because of the two tasks of the interpreter. First of all, to determine what the text meant to its immediate readers in that cultural setting, and to determine what the text means to us now in our context. How do we determine which practices, situations, commands, and precepts should be considered permanent and thus relevant for us today. So how do we determine which practices, situation, commands, or precepts should be considered permanent and thus relevant for us today, and which ones should be considered temporary and cultural? How do we know what is transferable to our culture and what is not transferable? Some situations, commands, or principles are repeatable 
continuous or not revoked and or pertain to moral and theological subjects and or are repeated elsewhere in scripture and therefore are permanent and transferable to us today. Like capital punishment in Genesis 9, 6, it's not revoked. Trust the Lord in Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 is repeated. Putting on the armor is not revoked, nor is the command for humility in 1 Peter 5, 6. As McQuilkin says, all scripture should be received as normative for every person in all societies of all time, unless the Bible itself limits the audience. The Bible is its own authority, even on what it sets limits on, what things are culture bound and what are not. Is the command paralleled in scripture elsewhere? This will help determine which commands are to be repeated. So that was number one, kind of a blanket all across the board. It's repeatable, it's continuous, it hasn't been revoked. Some of those things are moral and theological subjects or they are repeated elsewhere in scripture and are permanent and even are for us today in 2013. But number two, some situations, commands, or principles pertain to an individual's specific non-repeatable circumstance and or non-moral or non-theological subjects and have been revoked and are therefore not transferable to us today. For example, Paul's instruction to Timothy to bring his scrolls and his coats. Are you disobeying the scripture because you haven't done that, Will? You know, bring me a jacket, buddy, and some books. Or only Abraham was to sacrifice his son. This isn't for all Christian fathers. I know you've lost a few, Scott, but it's time to stop. Uh, the Aaronic priesthood who... Uh, and the whole Mosaic law has been done away with. Old Testament incest punishable by stoning and New Testament incest punished by excommunication. Some situations, the third kind of, it kind of gets watered down, I guess you could say, uh, with each one of these here. Third, some situations or commands pertain to cultural settings that are only partially similar to ours and in which only the principles are transferable. You know I love this one. Greet one another with a holy kiss, which we read five times in the New Testament. It's not a normal greeting in our day, dang it, <laughs> but we can do a similar greeting, a high five or something like that. Or Deuteronomy 6 speaks of writing verses on door frames and on our gates. Now we might hang them in picture frames or stitch them into a pillow or put them on our computer desktop. Or in 1 Corinthians 8, how we don't seem to see meat sacrificed to idols in the marketplace anymore, but we should still be sensitive and not cause our brother to stumble with our liberties. And fourthly, some situations or commands pertaining to cultural settings with no similarities, but in which the principles are transferable. 
like pouring perfume on Jesus's feet or removing sandals from the feet while we're in the presence of God. Verkler says, behavior that has a certain meaning in one culture may have an entirely different meaning in another culture. <clears throat> Brings us to the women's head coverings as a sign of submission to their husbands. In 1 Corinthians 11 verses 2 through 6, to not wear a head covering in the Greco-Roman culture was a sign of insubordination or rebellion, according to 3 Maccabees 36 in the writings of Plutarch, a Roman statesman. So, a couple different views here. View one, women should wear shawls, as depicted in archaeology, in church as a sign of submissiveness to their husband. If this view is held, then principle one, clear back at the top, is followed. <clears throat> the view that the cultural situ uh I'm not sure if I got that captured right here. What page are you guys on? Six. Someone want to read that? Uh, I don't think, did I finish view one? It's kind of cut off on mine. I didn't finish it. Will you finish it for me, Jill? Thank you. View two, the passage has no relevance for today. The view shows us, principle, uh, shows us principle two that neither the cultural situation nor the principle behind it are repeatable. In this situation, women may disregard this situation altogether as being applicable for them today because the cultural uh, situation has no correspondence to our culture today. Third view, women today should wear hats in church as a sign of submission following the third principle, seeing the situation in Corinth as being partially similar to our culture today and that the principle is transferable and permanent. Since women don't wear shawls, they should wear something similar to a hat. In view four, women need not wear hats, but they should be submissive to their husbands, corresponding with principle four. The cultural setting is different, but the principle is transferable. Jewish women did not wear head coverings until they were married, yet the principle of submission seems to be permanent and transferable to all present-day cultures. Also note, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 16, Paul concludes it by saying, But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Each biblical writing was written by someone to specific hearers, or readers in a specific historical geographical situation for a specific purpose. So we need to determine what the words meant to those who originally heard them. If you found a note on your neighbor's door saying, come on in as you're about to go in, you might hesitate and wonder, is this note for me? All right. <laughs> so, uh, if we go back to the, what page is that here? Page 11. If we go back to our method statement, whoa, I do not know what just happened. Okay. Our method statement is that we have a literal, historical, grammatical, contextual approach to the scriptures. And I just kind of hopped over grammatical and, and went contextual there for a second. So I apologize for that. Um, and so let's look at grammatical, a 
a grammatical method to our Bible studying, our observations, our interpretation. The Bible was written in a human language, not angel language. It's not a mystery language. God revealed himself to us. And, and as such, it can only be rightly understood when the meaning of all the words are known, which include their definitions, tenses, and relationships to one another in sentences and paragraphs. Uh, the Bible writings, every word, sentence, and book was given a written language and followed normal grammatical meanings, including figurative language. Since the Bible was written in this human language, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, it need not be decoded or translated. Those who read the Bible need not read into, between, or beyond the words for a deeper or, deeper or other than normal reading. The Bible spoke to the people and reached them where they were. So let the Bible speak for itself. The literal approach to scripture is the normal approach to all literature until the document pushes us into another level. Biblical prophecies of Christ were fulfilled literally as predicted. The goal of our Bible interpretation is to discover the original meaning of the text so that we might be changed by it. Some of these grammatical terms, it's just good to know what they are. Redemption, propitiation, justification, looking at the tenses and the vocabulary, uh, what they mean. Um, grammar is super important because as we looked in our gospel family series, if you jump down to this Ephesians 5.22 passage. Uh, so often in family counseling and in marriage teachings, uh, guys will just jump right to Ephesians 5.22 and say, wives, submit to your husband. But that's not in the original language. It says, wives, to your husbands also. The word submit isn't there, but it's taken from the previous verse, where it says in verse uh, 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. But the problem is grammatically, that's not a verb in verse 21, that word submitting, it's a participle. And so you have to go back and back and back and back until you find a verb. And you don't find a verb until verse 18, okay? Verse 18 has the imperative verb of being filled with the Holy Spirit, okay? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then one would ask, how am I filled with the Holy Spirit? And so it goes on with these participle phrases to show us how to do something, how to be uh, filled with the Spirit. And so it says in verse 19 of Ephesians chapter five, that we'll be speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We'll be singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord. We'll be giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and submitting to one another in the fear of God. So this is how you know someone is filled with the spirit, that they're in, in, in action there of being filled with the spirit. They're gonna be speaking, singing, giving thanks 
and submitting to one another. Submission is a mark of the Holy Spirit's work in a Christian's life. And so this is a place where you start to understand a little bit about grammar and how important it is that you don't just start in verse 22 saying wives submit or later on saying husbands love your wives because those are all participles of the main verb in verse 18 that's telling us we need to be filled with the spirit. If you just start if the wives do this and husbands do this, then you rob it of the power. You divorce the wife from the power. You divorce the husband from the power. And you put a big, giant heap of condemnation and a weight upon them because they won't be able to do it without not being drunk with wine, but being filled with the Holy Spirit. So grammar's important. Uh, as we look at the scriptural context in the grammar, this is huge, and it might be the most important there. The Bible can only be rightly discerned when the individual words, phrases, verses, or paragraphs are seen in an ever-widening circle of surrounding verses, paragraphs, chapters, and books. Each biblical writing was accepted or understood in the light of its whole context. So before we were talking about cultural context, now we're talking about scriptural context. How would we know if trunk is speaking of the trunk of a tree, the nose of an elephant, the rear of a car, a piece of luggage, a thorax of an insect, part of the human body, or the circuit between telephone line and exchanges? A person who knows nothing about uh, well, we, we know that because of the context of the conversation that we're talking about. Um, it's obvious if I'm talking about a tree or the back of my car or my midsection area. Um, this was encouraging. As Art said, a person who knows nothing about Greek or Hebrew can be tremendously effective as a Bible reader, a student, and a teacher if they are very much committed to this contextual emphasis. Ignoring it will be the cause of your greatest mistakes, but being rigorous with it will cause you to get it right 90% of the time. It means I avoid what J.I. Packer calls evangelical cigarettes. Evangelical cigarettes is where we strip a verse out of its context, we drag, take a drag on it, it makes us feel good, and we use it in a way that the Bible never meant it to be used. A verse that's been stripped out of its context over and over again. One that Joel Olstein has made millions of dollars on by taking out of context is John chapter 15, verse 7, which is said, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. And how many of us have taken that and been like, sweet, I get a bigger car now. I'm going to get those six pack abs or my you know, wayward kids are going to be coming home. But it's important to know what the context, six-pack abs, totally. It's important to look at the context of what Jesus was saying when he said, uh, you will ask what you desire and it will be done for you. And if you flipped to John chapter 15, I'm just going to spoil it for you for the sake of time. The subject of verse 1 is bearing fruit. The subject of verse 2 is bearing fruit. The subject of verse 3 is bearing fruit. The subject of verse 4 is bearing fruit. The subject of verse 5 is bearing fruit. The subject of verse 6 is bearing fruit. Apparently, the subject of verse 7 is a generic prayer promise that has nothing to do with anything else. And then the subject of verse 8 is bearing fruit. 
And so we would see that if we're just taking that on whatever we want, we'll get because we're asking it in Jesus's name. We desire it. We're going to get it. We've taken that verse and used it as a cigarette. We've stripped it apart, taken our drag on it, and then tossed it away in a way that was never supposed to be used. All the way down through verse eight, there's a promise there about bearing fruit. And verse seven is not a generic prayer promise, but is in the context of fruit. Now, what kind of fruit? Most of us would say fruit of the spirit, right? That's what we seem to think of fruit. But the whole context that Jesus spoke of is in John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give you. So the fruit isn't fruits of the spirit in this case. It's fruit that comes from us going, going and preaching the gospel. Fruit is the product of going. So the promise of prayer here is in the context of fruit growing and the context of going, okay? So see how that verse has gotten just taken out of context just so that people could get whatever they wanted and how preachers out there have made millions of dollars by people buying into that when he completely robbed it of its scriptural context of the surrounding verses around it. Um, Let's look at uh, another one that we see a lot. If you just jump down a little for the sake of time, Matthew 18, 20. And real quick, just I noticed right above that, it says children's curriculum, women's books, and family literature are some of the most frequent places where you'll see things stripped out of their context. So be a bulldog in championing championing things staying in their context, okay? It's okay in a Bible study setting to say, what's the context of that, okay? It's okay in your core groups and in your home groups uh, to, to be saying, what's the context? What's the context? Let's look. Maybe they're right. Okay, okay, that is the context. But maybe they're totally taking it out of context. Uh, Matthew 18, 20, we have this verse. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. And so we have used this so often as, you know, hey, pray over our evening together. Okay, Lord, we know you're here because there's two or three of us here. Okay, uh, great way to start a church prayer meeting, right? But what does verse 20 start with? A word, it's underlined, I think. For, okay. For doesn't stand alone. It's related to what's preceded, all right? Uh, if you look at verse 19, it says the word again at the very beginning of it. So don't even finish reading verse 19 because you, it's again. You can't start something on again, all right? Uh, so then you go to verse 18. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Um, let's see verse 18 here. Was it 18? Again, uh, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth. Okay, okay, gotcha, sorry. Um, so what am I binding on earth? What am I binding in heaven? Uh, well, let's go back a little farther. If he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church in verse 17. Who, who is he here? Uh, you go back to verse 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. If he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses to even hear the church, tell, let him be to you 
like a heathen and a tax collector, why would we want to do all of this hard work? Because there's three promises. First of all, in verse 18, assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Verse 19 is the second promise. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that I ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, which is also a verse taken out of context. And verse 20, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. So what's the context of where two or three are gathered together, there I am in the midst of them. It's in the context of church discipline. So it's not the best verse to use to open up a small prayer meeting, <laughs> okay? But we take it and we take it out of context for it to mean what we want it to mean. Stay committed to this principle of gramma, grammatical context and you will be in the right way more than you will be in the wrong. You don't need to know Greek or Hebrew, but read verses in their context and you'll be right 90% of the time. You have to be a bulldog about this. And uh, we're gonna see at the end of this uh, some of those key words to look for that mean, oh, we're not there yet, we're not there yet. And we saw them right there where it's the word for or again, okay? Or if it's unclear as to who we're talking about, go back farther so that you can get the understanding. Yeah. So can you explain the word true meaning of verse 20? The true meaning of verse 20? Um, yeah, so, right, so church discipline a very hard thing to do. I mean, you're confronting a brother time and time again with the purpose of gaining the brother. And then it comes down to the point of a very hard thing of sharing it with the church. And we've done that here at our church probably three or four times since I've been here. And, you know, it, it's difficult, right? But something that's happening in that process, it even goes beyond difficulty, is something that's happening in the spiritual realm where 1 Corinthians 5 tells us we're handing this person over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. We're essentially saying, you have this individual so that their flesh might be destroyed, but that they might be saved through that. And so uh, there's something that's going on in the spiritual realm as well as something that's very difficult to do in the earthly realm um, as we're doing it. And so the Lord is promising us and encouraging us that verse 18, you're binding something, something's happening in the heavenly realm. You're handing something over to Satan in the heavenly realm, verse 18, and he's telling us it's done when you do that uh, within the church, pro with, within the process that it's laying out there. And then verse 19, there's an agreement upon that. You're asking that to happen. And then finally, the Lord is present. Uh, he's there when that takes place. So would you say, Kevin? Nope. <laughs> there's probably more to it off the fly. That's probably what I'd, what I'd say. Dude, it's in a couple pages from here. Yeah, totally, man. Yeah, if we get there, uh, we probably aren't going to get there tonight. I'm trying so hard, people. <laughs> but yeah, you're totally right, Scott. Yeah, and we'll we'll talk about that in a second. And a little tool that's helpful with um, looking past all that. So, um, <clears throat> okay, let me mark my spot and let me just see how far we could go here this evening. Bam, bam. Okay, we're going to go down to the practice of Bible study a six-step process um, before we close tonight. Maybe we'll get a little more discussion here. <clears throat> so be a bulldog about scriptural context as well as historical, geographical, political, agricultural, all that type of context as well. Um, 
you need to see how it fits into the context, not only of the paragraph and the chapter and the book that you're studying, but how it fits into the context of the whole Bible. Because your little interpretation of it that you might have, this is how it applies to me around the coffee table, could be completely uh, not what this text is trying to get across, let alone what the whole Bible theme is. So if your interpretation is going against the theme of the whole Bible, then there's an issue, especially, uh, maybe I'll say ultimately, does this lead you to Jesus? Okay, does this lead you to Jesus? Because in Luke 25, the resurrected Jesus says, Moses wrote all these things about me. The law and the prophets are about me. Uh, So later on, I believe uh, we'd speak on that next week. How does, oh, I guess we're doing it now. How does the passage fit in the context of the one major storyline? I think I learned from Kevin, who learned from Matt Chandler, that's called the meta-narrative, like the whole narrative of the scriptures, that it's about God's redemption of mankind, God's purpose to save the human race through Jesus Christ. Um, All of the little stories contribute to the telling of the one big story. And um, I wish I had it with me right now, but I I had it with me earlier. It's the Jesus Storybook Bible. And uh, we have them back here in the kids' room, and they're so great. First, the pictures looked a little hippie for me, (laughs) but found out, like, it's so awesome. I love it, right? I love it because um, it goes, the Jesus Storybook Bible, every story whispers his name. And they're teaching our kids how each story, you know, Adam and Eve, Noah's Ark, blah, 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 it's all pointing to Jesus, and it's all pointing to the hero who's going to come. So get that Bible because it's great for your own personal Bible study time. Like, so how does Cain and Abel point to Jesus? And you can flip there, and it tells you. So it's really cool. Kenny, you know what Bible I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah, the one with the hippie pictures. Yep, that one. <laughs> okay. Yes, we can teach David and Goliath but not as a sanctified version of Jack and the Beanstalk story. We can tell the Noah's Ark story, but not as a sanctified Dr. Doolittle story, because that's not what it's about. The entire Bible is an outworking of Genesis 3.16, the proto-evangelion, where the first mention of the gospel in the scripture, that the seed of Eve would crush the serpent, and the serpent would bruise his heel. It's all speaking to the Redeemer who's coming. And so all of the Bible moves towards him coming. Even how we were talking about Nehemiah by the end of the book is so frustrated because the people had a revival, but they couldn't keep the law. And so it leaves you hanging chronologically for that day when someone's going to come who will keep the law and impute that perfection to us. You just keep spiraling out to see how your text fits ultimately in all of the Bible little space here for you. Context is king. Context is king. If there's a bunch of different definitions for one word, which fits best with the context? Okay, and if you look up a word in the Greek lexicon, it might have a bunch of different uh, definitions. Um, Okay, so I was working out this morning, and I happened to be watching the Jimmy Fallon show while I was pumping iron. Okay, I'm sorry. (laughs) It said a screenshot as this girl was looking up a definition for namaste. Namaste, okay? And it said, um, a lazy way for a man to say, no, I'm going to (laughs) stay. 
Namaste. Okay. Anyways, <laughs> that was your little pit stop in the middle of your learning here. If you got a bunch of different definitions, what is namaste? Peace or something? So, okay. It's not namaste. Okay. <laughs> if you got a bunch, it did fit in here, kind of. No, not at all. Bunch of different different definitions for one word. What fits best with the context, okay? Um, there was a man at the men's retreat I spoke, or I spoke at last week. Um, I mean, I was like totally out of my place because these are all like engineers and just like geniuses. And this one guy comes up, he's like, I wrote a documentary on eSword and how you can use the Greek and blah, 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 blah. And he's just like a genius. And he's all, people say in the Greek, the word all means all, but it doesn't look. And he just like hand wrote like, like all the different alls, right? The, the way that it's mentioned in scripture, which was very good and teachable moment for me. But it's important that you take the definition that fits best in its context, okay? Um, which gets us into uh, exegesis, the application of the hermeneutical principles to the biblical text in order to understand and explain it, okay? So we've had all of these message so, methods so far. Can you remember them? Uh, literal, historical, grammatical, contextual, all right? These are the methods that we interpret the scriptures, okay? Um, so if we move into exegesis, it's applying all of this so that we can understand it and explain it. When you take all of the principles of hermeneutics and you sit down and you apply them, you are doing what's called exegesis, okay? You are an exegete, the theologians say. Exegesis means to draw out, and it's what we want to do in our Bible studies. We're doing the literal, the historical, the grammatical, the contextual, uh, looking at all of that uh, as we study the Bible, and we draw out of that. Um, the opposite of that, though, is eisegesis, which is to read into the text, and we want to avoid that at all costs. In technical usage, it says here, in technical usage, hermeneutics aims to establish the methodological principles necessary to interpret the biblical text, while exegesis aims to apply these principles to the actual process of unfolding the meaning of the text. In general, hermeneutics is related to exegesis as theory is to practice. Okay, so they're related. Hermeneutics, the art of studying the Bible, as we've just looked at, the art and practice of studying the Bible. And then it goes down into exegesis, drawing out of what you've just been studying, just like a theory is to actual practicing it. Okay. Then we have exposition. Exposition. Exposition is the actual process of proclaiming the truth and applying it to contemporary man. That might be at your children's church that you're speaking at, the Sunday school class. It might be at the youth group. It might be, you know, Tammy and Scott while they're playing their song and they share a scripture, you know, to encourage the people towards worship um, or, or Sunday morning preaching. 
Uh, that's ex expositor, um, expediting, maybe it is expediting, would that be the tense? Expositioning the word. <laughs> there we go. Obviously, I'm the scholar you should be learning from. Uh, nope, you guys. <laughs> exposing, maybe. Sorry, tense just isn't there for me tonight. There you go. <laughs> Thanks. That's why we're a plurality of elders, my friends. <laughs> okay. In technical usage, are you ready for some more technical stuff? Exegesis is usually limited to the critical interpretation of the scripture. Exegesis is usually limited to the critical interpretation of the scripture in the original language, while exposition is the proclamation of the meaning and application of the scripture into modern man. Without question, good exposition presupposes and assumes sound exegesis. In general, exegesis is related to exposition as interpretation is to application. Now, to get back to maybe simplifying it, the whole iceberg, right, would be uh, exegesis, okay? The whole iceberg would be um, hermeneutics, right? And, and you draw out of what you've been studying. And then just at the top of the iceberg on the top that's poking out, uh, that you see that tiny little bit, that small percentage would be the uh, exposition, right? The proclamation of what you've learned and how it's relevant in the Holy Spirit specifically speaking it to these people this day in their culture. So, so got a little ways to go. Um, quickly, there's a couple different types of Bible study as well. One is inductive Bible study. Who, who, who else heard that term before, inductive Bible study? Okay, I know Gail Smith is like all about the inductive Bible study. She's got the inductive Bible. If you have the Logos Bible app, which is free on your phone, it's got an inductive Bible uh, tab there. Inductive Bible study or induction is the process in which a person begins with specific individual items like a biblical text and puts them together to form a generic principle. When using the inductive approach to the study and presentation of the scriptures, a person allows the Bible to speak for itself and on its own. Spirit-inspired truths, without preconceived ideas and notions, he first approaches the text to discover its spirit-intended meaning, only then to draw out appropriate applications in harmony with that meaning. So, as you go to the text and you just let the text be your scaffolding, as Alistair Begg says, and the text provides your outline, you just let the text speak for itself and you as the student say, hey, the Bible rules, I am its servant and I bow my knee to the text as I study it. The text is I'm drawing out of it. It keeps us from saying, all right, dating is wrong. Let me go to the Bible. I'm gonna find a verse on it and, uh, and I'm gonna start with my presupposition or birth control is wrong. So I'm going to go to the Bible and find these verses on it and kind of compile them all together. Uh, and it's important to note that without the Bible, uh, neither myself nor anybody else has anything good to say to say to you. 
You don't want to just hear us spout about morality or politics or anything else. Uh, our job is to make clear to you the sound teaching of the word of God. And, uh, and uh, there's a little exhortation there for you guys to make it happen in my schedule that I'd be able to spend that time or the elders spending that time given to prayer into the word of God. Now, the opposite of an inductive Bible study is the deductive Bible study. Deduction is the process in which a person begins with a general principle, like it's Mother's Day, let's honor mothers, and applies it to one or uh, one more specific instance. In the deductive approach to Bible study, a person goes to the scripture with a preconceived idea, notion, or concept of what a godly truth or principle is, and then attempts to support his idea, notion, or concept with the scriptures. It's important to note there are times when the deductive approach may be valid and effective. Sometimes it's referred to as topical teaching or preaching. However, got to be alerted and careful and warned. There are dangers of this approach, which are obvious. When a person reads a passage with a certain idea already in mind, he may not see all that there is to see in the passage, and he may end up interpreting the text to support his assumptions rather than allowing it to say what it says. The process of reading into the text is known as eisegesis. Uh, for instance, Mother's Day, we want to do a message on Mother's Day. What do we want to do? We want to honor mothers. Okay, so what should we do then? Well, we need to love them, buy them flowers, buy dinner, find verses on it, and preach it. Okay, find verses on those things. That's a dangerous thing. Instead, if you're going to teach a Mother's Day sermon, you go to passages dealing directly with mothers, or uh, you could look at a specific mother. And uh, it's important to note the moment you open the book, you yield your rights to do and think whatever you want. <clears throat> With all of that, we have the exhortation or the, the example from the Berean church in Acts 17, 11. It was a group of people who were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica and that they received the word of God with readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. And uh, we need to do that in every teaching that we're in. Search the scripture to see if these things are so. It can be hard though, because especially as your, as your experience lengthens in ministry and especially in teachings, you find things that you've been wrong on and people come to you with the scriptures and say, hey, what about this? It takes humility to admit that you're wrong. The more experience you have, the more humility uh, that you need. So uh, bef uh, before we end tonight, a good read for you, if you have the funds and you want to buy a book on the subject, would be Gordon Fee's book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. And I think Art has a book called Spirit-Empowered Preaching that you could look at as well. So next week, we'll finish this up. That gives you kind of technically another week to do that um, chapter in the discipleship packet. There are no doctrinal questions this week, so you don't have to do that. Any questions tonight on any of this stuff? I know that it can cause a bit of a brain seizure and that's okay. You have the information here now so you can take it home as you're teaching and as you're in your core group, you're like, man, what's the principle there again? You can go back to these things. Um, yeah, because we're still kind of on Bible. And so uh, I think the next thing you guys will do in that is the first section on God, God.
You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.